Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And that is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Bridge Radio, and we're coming at you from the great state of Texas. I am your host, A.W. Varela, and next to me, my new co-host for this episode, and you guys know him because he is the main host for Bridge Espanol, for Bridge uh, Radio in Espanol, uh, and that is Dr. Rafael Mangual. Hello, 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 everyone. <laughs> we are super excited to have Dr. Rafael on on uh, because today we're actually going to be talking about a very, very, uh, I guess, important topic uh, to Dr. Raphael. Uh, but we are bringing on authors on this book called Counterfeit Kingdom, The Dangers of New Revelation, New Prophet, and New Age Practices in the Church. Uh, with The authors are Holly Pevick and R. Douglas Glevitt. And I no, don't know if I pronounced that cor uh, correctly, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll fix that here. And that is by B&H Publishing. And we love B&H Publishing, and uh, we're super excited, excited to have uh, first-time guests on here. So uh, I think it's going to be a great, great topic. Uh, if you guys haven't heard uh, Dr. Rafael's testimony in Spanish, please go to Bridge Espanol and check that out. And we'll have it in English yeah. pretty soon. Yeah, I'm still waiting for that, though. Like, you're taking forever. <laughs> but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get that. Well, well, the book, this interview will set it up. <laughs> yes. You know, so they'll understand where we're coming okay. from. Well, that that's exciting. Um, and we are coming up in our 200th episode, guys. Uh, that is coming around the corner soon. Uh, we have been out for a little bit. Again, it's just been busy. Just want to update you guys on the ministry. Uh, again, uh, we have been just doing so much here in the new location. It's been absolutely busy. We praise the Lord for that. Uh, again, we are back again doing our uh, weekly Bible studies. Uh, seminaries going on. Uh, people are just buying Bibles. We just recently had our Spanish conference that absolutely went super well. And just the uh, the fruits that just came out of that conference uh, for the Spanish-speaking community. So, again, thank you. Thank you very much to our listeners all around the world who tune in each week and listen to our old podcast and tune into our new ones. Again, uh, we have just been super busy. So hopefully here as the new year rolls around and this year ends, uh, we'll be a little bit more consistent in having uh, uh, our weekly podcast on. But uh, thank you again for listening. And guys, don't forget to subscribe to Apple, Android, Google, and Stitcher Radio. And please visit our website at bridgemenlaredo.org. And we are also on Spotify. So again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. And uh, Dr. Raphael, are we ready to get this podcast started? Let's get started. Let's do it. Holly Pivik is a blogger, author, and speaker, as well as a pastor's wife and homeschooling mom. She has a master's degree in apologetics from Biola University, where she has also served as university editor for nearly a decade. 
She has co-authored two books about the New Apostolic Reformation, New Apostolic Reformation, and God, God's Super Apostles. She operates a popular blog, which has followers from around the world and has spoken and written for several audience and outlet. R. Douglas Guybet is husband, father of two grown children, professor, author, and speaker. He has a PhD in philosophy from USC and teaches at Biola University and Talbot School of Theology. Douglas has written or edited several books and has spoken on issues related to the New Apostolic Reformation, Christian apologetics, and the Christian life to audience all over the world. Uh, welcome to Bridge Radio for the first time, Holly and Doug. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great, great to be talking with you. Yes, thank you for the invitation. Well, we are super excited to have you on this topic that we are going to be discussing uh, on the book that you guys co-wrote uh, together is Counterfeit Kingdom, The Dangers of New Revelation, New Prophets, and New Age Practices in the Church by B&H Publishing. And, and guys, before we begin the podcast, uh, can you guys just tell us a little bit about yourself and how God drew you to Saving Faith? Yeah, well, I've been married to Adam for 17 years. My husband is an associate pastor. We live in Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, we were previously we were from Southern California. Uh, however, I we have two daughters and I homeschool them. Um, but uh, I was working at Biola University um, as the university editor and also the managing editor of Biola Magazine. And it was there in 2002 when I first learned about the new apostolic reformation movement, the topic of our books. And it was a reader of the magazine actually who reached out, wrote the magazine. And um, she was a graduate of Biola and she was very concerned about this movement that she described, this movement of apostles and prophets, she said was taking over the churches in her city. Mm-hmm. And she was hoping that maybe a, uh, you know, by sending this letter to the university, it could be passed on maybe to a professor who might take interest in writing a book um, showing how the teachings of this movement are, are unbiblical and dangerous. And um, But it was as I was reading her letter that it caught my attention because I was a researcher of cults and, and aberrant groups. I, I wrote articles at this time for the Christian Research Journal. And so it caught my attention that it was a movement I had never heard of that she was describing. And so I started doing some research and um, I really learned that this was, even back in 2002, was a very large, a very influential movement. Um, it had been around, and I just hadn't had eyes to see it because I, I didn't know what the teachings and the terminology was. And I started realizing that people I knew were actually a part of this movement, including even uh, someone I had just met and started dating at the time. That was Adam who uh, is now my husband. So he he left the movement. Um, his eyes were open to it. Wow. And we ended up getting married and, and now I've been married for 17 years and he's a pastor. But um, but that was how I first learned about this movement. Oh, wow. And how did you come to, to how did the, did the Lord draw you to saving faith in Christ? Were you raised in a Christian home or... Because mm-hmm. it sounds like you come from an Orthodox, you know, from a very biblical Christian background. Yes, I actually was raised in a Christian home, was very blessed uh, for that to be the case. Had a father who was just steeped in the Word of God and um, really passed that on to me. 
that love for God's word and just high reverence for it. And when I, I can recall when I was about five years old, uh, I got off the school bus one day and I was, my dad were, owned an insurance business and I was, I was walking into his business and, and he told me there was something he wanted to talk to me about. And I remember him sharing the gospel with me. And of course, you know, I'd heard it before, but being raised in a Christian home, but um, he asked if, um, you know, if uh, I wanted to put my faith in, in Christ and, and receive him as my savior. And I remember kneeling with him in his office <laughs> uh, and, and praying. And uh, But years later, when I was about in junior high, I really started having some questions about my faith and some doubts because I knew other kids in public school who were had different religious backgrounds. And I really started wondering if maybe the only reason I was a Christian was because I had been raised that way in a Christian home. And so my dad at that time gave me a Josh McDowell book and I discovered apologetics mm. and it just really um, relieved me to know that my faith was based on facts and it wasn't wishful thinking and it wasn't just because I was raised that way. And so that's when I discovered apologetics and really, and really uh, it was my lifeline at that time and really developed a love for it. Wow. How about you, Doug? How? Yeah, well, so uh, many years ago, I was born into a Christian home, mm -hmm. and uh, my parents were very faithful in teaching us the, the Bible. I was the oldest of, of my siblings, and uh, we all grew up uh, going to good churches that were Bible teaching churches, and uh, we grew up with a respect for the Scriptures as the Word of God and as our reference point for truth about spiritual things. Uh, I was baptized, I believe, about eight years old, and uh, at a church just not far from my home here now. And uh, <clears throat> I grew up going there to a Baptist church, and then for a number of years we were on uh, the mission field in Mexico when I was a teenager. It was during those years when I was a teenager, and it's not unusual at all for this to happen, when I had questions about my faith that, that were new to me. Uh, I had never really been drawn to anything other than Jesus. Uh, there was no religion that was attractive to me outside of Christianity, but I did feel the need to uh, have belief that was adequately grounded in evidence. Very early in my life, I felt that need. And so I was always asking questions, and naturally I was asking questions of my, my parents and Christian leaders around me. And I was blessed with lots of people who were pretty well equipped to respond to my questions for that stage in my life. When I got into college, the barriers were greater for me. And uh, I, again, there was no worldview that was more attractive to me than Christian theism, but I still felt a great need for evidence to be uh, sure that I believed for good reason. And uh, so that launched me into the study of philosophy and integrated with theology and biblical studies. So I did some of my undergraduate work at a Bible college and some at a secular university and combined these. And uh, then eventually went to seminary and studied uh, theology and philosophy together. And that's how I ended up going into philosophy. I have a PhD in philosophy, and I've been teaching philosophy for over 30 years. I teach Christian apologetics and write quite a bit in that field because I'm concerned that people become aware of the many good reasons we have for believing the things that we do, both Christians and non-Christians. So I, one thing uh, I, I do got to ask, because I'm very curious, and I'm sure our audience uh, 
are probably curious as well. How did you two come together to write this book? Because uh, <laughs> we don't get too many authors, co-authors on Br- uh, Bridge Radio. It's 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 rare. And about that topic, even. yeah, and I mean, about that yeah, topic, NAR, yeah, and and people who were not really involved. I mean, Holly, Adam was involved in the NAR, but none of you had actually been through this. <laughs> Right. Well, when I was working at um, Biola as the editor of Biola magazine, I would sometimes interview Doug. I would interview different Biola faculty. And so for articles I was writing for the magazine. And so I got to know him that way and know him as a professor there at Biola, where I was also earning my master's degree in apologetics and going to school at that time. And so um, after I began researching this movement, I reached out to Doug because I saw that he had been interviewed for an article where he was asked about a revival, one of the the NAR revivals. And I thought, oh, he might know something about this movement. And I'd been kind of looking for for someone who might collaborate with me and and help me write a book. And so I reached out to him and and he can tell you from there, (laughs) his his side of it. (laughs) What was the revival, Doug? Well, that was the uh, the the Florida. Which one was it, Holly? The Lakeland. I think that was Lakeland. Lakeland. Yeah. Yeah. Todd Bentley. Were you there? Were you there? (laughs) No, I was not there. In fact, I was interviewed by I forget which major uh, news outlet it was that had an. they wanted to do a story on mm. the Lakeland revival, as it was called, and they caught up with me in the Ukraine. <laughs> it was called the Ukraine at the time. Oh wow! And now it's just Ukraine. But uh, I was teaching apologetics for a week during uh, that time, and uh, they found me. And I remember in the middle of the night, I was responding to their questions about that. So I guess that's what uh, what gave Holly some reason to think that I might uh, be interested or know something about the movement. But the truth is. As a movement, I really did not know much about it, uh, and it was <clears throat> after reading some of the research that Holly had done, and she'd done a lot of uh, really good, solid research and writing on the topic uh, when I learned of it from her, and so I was able to just dive into that and read and uh, and get interested, and then I had to decide whether th- there was space in my life at the time to uh, to partner with her in writing. And she persuaded me. She was <laughs> very uh, d- determined, I guess you could say, uh, to have me involved. I think because um, <clears throat> our skills naturally complement each other. And we've learned that from the time that we've been together writing. And now four books. Uh, we've got another one coming out next year. Awesome. And uh, – and and we've just had we've we've really had a very smooth road together, writing. She's done so much uh, research uh, into the facts of the movement, and my my background is in philosophy and logic and theology and biblical studies, and so. Uh, where we've had to deal with some of the uh, logical problems with the movement and theological uh, and biblical departures within the movement into error, uh, I've been able to make a little bit of a contribution on on certain topics. That definitely comes out in your book for sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, 
that is super exciting. And we praise the Lord that uh, they brought you guys got brought together to tackle this topic, which, you know, um, you know, this is something Dr. Raphael and I, you know, have we've we've talked to a lot. And I joke about I joke with him a lot about Abe, it. I did not go to Lakeland. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, I yeah. watched it every night, he, but I did not he, go. <laughs> he made the mistake. He made the mistake of showing me a video once. And that was it. So, you know, I, I poke fun of him and he's my brother in Christ and I love him to death. But I. Uh, I, I really, I, I know the danger, you know, where you, yeah, go ahead. I, I really love the cover of the book. Oh, it's great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I'm going to ask the question, but it's almost like a rhetorical question because I, I can imagine, but I see the Pied Piper being followed by a bunch of kids. And then the title of the book is Counterfeit Kingdom, the dangers of new revelation, new prophets, new, and new age practices in the church, which, I mean, that's a pretty bold, strong statement. Uh, tell me a little bit more about, how you came up with the title and with the with the art, uh, why you choose that that art? Is it the Pied Piper? <laughs> yes, hmm. yes, it is. Wow. Well, uh, we went through a lot of options when we talked about titles, and uh, to be honest with you, speaking for myself now, uh, every time we hit on a title that sounded like it might work, it still didn't ring right for me, and. Mm. I don't remember exactly how we came up with Counterfeit Kingdom uh, in the end, but we were talking together, and uh, and then it just kind of struck a chord with us that uh, the movement is, and, and you see this in Bethel Writings, for example, uh, where I'm referring to Bethel Church in Redding, California, as a center of activity for the, the new apostolic reformation. Uh, they talk about, uh, preach, uh, the coming of the kingdom to earth and bringing heaven to earth. Mm. And we believe that the kind of kingdom they envision is not a biblical uh, vision for the kingdom, though they will talk about it as if it is. And so it is a counterfeit. And there are many respects in which it misrepresents what God, we believe, what God is doing in the world and trying to do in the world. And so that's why uh, we came up with this language. Now, <clears throat> the subtitle is more descriptive because we do talk about uh, the new revelations that are uh, proclaimed, uh, their tradition of prophecy, uh, predictive prophecy as well. And then there are new age practices that have filtered into the church through this movement. And uh, we can talk about some of those. Yeah. But obviously, uh, we've written a whole book on just this narrow aspect of our topic. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to let Holly explain. She does a great job of explaining the difference between this book and the other two books that we've done, that, that, have, that we've published, so that you can understand why you'd want to get this book as soon as you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, just first to your question about the Pied Piper, um, you know, for those who don't know, that's a medieval folktale dating back to the 13th century. Um, some say it was actually based, there's reason to believe it was based on true facts. Mm. Um, but a musician was hired to rid a, rid a German town of a rat infestation uh, by using his magic pipe. And he did that. He used his pipe, but then the town refused to pay him. And so as revenge, he lured all the town's children away with his magic pipe and they were never seen again. And there's there's different variations of that tale and and or what have, may have happened to the children but that's the basic story. Um, and so, of course, there are parallels, you know, that people are being lured away from the truth to a distorted Christianity. And music actually plays a big role in that seduction. And youth are especially vulnerable 
to the claims of the NAR leaders. Um, but as far as the difference in, in our new book, so our previous books really focused on the theology of the movement. They took a deep dive in, and really provide the, provided the theological framework. But this new book, Counterfeit Kingdom, focuses, uh, it does address theology, but it really focuses a lot on the practices, the, the specific practices um, that that are uh, being introduced into churches, the in um, just really where the rubber meets the road with how NAR is, is getting into uh, churches and influencing Christians through ministries, through music. Um, and so the emphasis is, is really on the practices in this book. Well, thank you for... You know, there's a... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say thank you for just uh, letting us know a little bit background of the Pipe Piper. There, uh, we, we do have a worldwide audience, and they probably wouldn't know what that is. So I really do appreciate you uh, just explaining that for our uh, foreign um, um, listening audience. So thank you for that. I just want to say thank you. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Doug. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, in, in the field of theology, we make a distinction between sometimes called dogmatic theology or systematic theology, and it's it's a set of propositions that are rooted in what the Scriptures reveal about uh, spiritual realities, God and His existence, His nature, and so forth. But we distinguish that from practical theology. Practical theology is concerned with the practices that we engage in as Christians and as a church, and we study everything from personal evangelism to Christian apologetics to the nature of prayer to how to organize church and uh, all the different things that go into the practice of the Christian life, whether as an individual or as a, as a collective group of uh, Christians coming together for church. And uh, this book is focusing on practical theology. Much of our practical theology is learned through exposure. Uh, not always uh, taught in, in so many words, but oftentimes just experienced. And when we're around other people, we learn how to pray from their praying, uh, whether that's at church or at home or with other Christian people. And that's just one example of how we learn something in practical theology that's really fundamental. But we can't lose sight of what scriptures actually teach about these things as well. So when we're learning from experience and observation of others how to pray, we also need to study the scriptures and know what prayer is and how it is taught in the scriptures and make sure that the praying that we're seeing, that, that we're observing, that we're exposed to, and that we're imitating is actually biblical prayer. And I've mentioned this because this is just one area where in the new apostolic reformation, they get it wrong, where uh, the way they think about prayer is uh, misleading and, and the teaching is not accurate. It doesn't come from Scripture. There's a form of prayer that they practice called prayer of declaration or declaration prayer, and it's different than petitionary prayer, though it might be confused for that. And so uh, we should probably talk about that as an example, but it's a reason why we have focused on what the, the, the Bible teaches about some of these areas of practical theology that are a matter of concern for every believer every day of, of his or her life, right, because of prayer is such an important component. Now, now that you started talking about it, I think we should go into it, because uh, this is something coming out of it, you know, decreeing and declaring 
is the way to pray and any other way is lack of faith. If you could please give us more information, uh, especially for those who have never heard about this, what is the difference between biblical prayer and prayer the NAR style? Biblical prayer is, is you know, we, we ask God, we petition him um, for things, whether it's for healing or, or any other needs we may have, um, finances. But we, we understand that God, you know, we ask God and he decides whether to grant that, that request or not. But in the NAR, um, that petitionary prayer is seen as inferior um, the most powerful form of prayer is making prayer declarations. So you speak words that are believed to create reality, uh, that, that God has authorized believers to make these declarations, maybe declarations uh, that someone will be healed or for finances, um, things like that. And, and the words are actually believed to create reality, much like God spoke in Genesis and created. And um, leaders in this movement, such as Bill Johnson, he's the apostle at Bethel Church in Reading, he actually has gone so so far as to say that nothing happens in the kingdom until first there is a declaration. And he even suggests that the first coming of Christ um, only happened when, when uh, believers were making prayer declarations and that the second coming of Christ will not happen until um, believers are making prayer declarations. Literally nothing happens in the kingdom until first a declaration is made. And so this is a redefined... Um, version of prayer that is promoted and, and practiced in NAR um, that is that is nothing like biblical prayer. Well, that would go and against it, Scripture because we can read in Acts that this was predetermined before the foundation of the world, that Christ would come into the world to save his people, right? Yeah, they would probably say, though, that uh, while that is predetermined, it's going to happen, and it's, it's even foretold uh, prophetically, uh, it won't happen until prayer declarations are made. So they they would probably seek to harmonize their view about declaration prayer wow. on that point with Scripture in that way. <clears throat> I think because everything is really conditional, and then in a little bit we could get into the prophetic on how everything is really conditional. And and what is their view of God? I mean, if if the biblical way to pray is you request, make your prayer requests made known unto God and give him thanks. Uh, what about the NAR? What is God doing? Is he just sitting and waiting on our <laughs> command? Or, I mean, what, what is what is their point of view? Of, what is God doing? He has pretty much delegated us that authority. Yeah, I mean, there are, are quotes, uh, you know, a quote by Chris Valentin, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of prayer authorizes God to do to do his will on the planet. And so really, um, you know, like uh, Bill Johnson has said, nothing happens in the kingdom until first there is a declaration. Wow. Now, of course, the second coming of Christ, the example that Holly gave, uh, is revealed in Scripture. We're expecting it because it's taught in Scripture. Jesus himself promised to return. Uh, but uh, there are other things they declare that are not revealed in Scripture, but they're prophetic too. So they might... Uh, declare that, uh, well, they did, in fact, a few years ago, declare uh, that a young child who was born to parents who were involved in the ministry at Bethel Church in Reading, uh, her name was Olive Heiligenthal, 
uh, she she died. She died uh, at age two in her home, and unexpectedly. <clears throat> and uh, of course, this was this was a source of great sorrow for the family, for the couple. And uh, the mother came out and said, uh, "Let's declare." the resurrection of Olive. And uh, she involved the leadership of the church. They consented to participate with her in this, and it became a global declaration. It was done through social media, and people all over the world were declaring that little Olive would rise from the dead. And this was not a request. Again, this was not a petition. Uh, they weren't asking for this. It's actually rather unusual uh, for Christians to pray for the resurrection of, of someone who has recently died. Uh, so even that would be a little bit un- atypical. But this wasn't even a petition. This was a declaration. It was a prayer of declaration that Olive would rise from the dead. And so uh, they would uh, declare her to wake up, wake up Olive. Did, uh, did Olive wake up? No. Well, no. Uh, Several days went by, and with each passing day, uh, they just continued to reassert their confidence that this was going to happen. And then I believe it was about the sixth day, they uh, finally uh, acknowledged that uh, it was not happening and that they would be planning a uh, memorial service for Little Olive. And uh, Holly may have in her notes handy, I'm not sure, the press release that they provided as an explanation for what happened, uh, what the church said uh, about the event after it was determined that she would not rise after all. Do you have that, Holly? Um, I, I Let's see if I can pull it up quickly here. Um, I should be able to. We can summarize it. Oh, but... I found it. I found it. It's, um, it says, as a church, we have been contending for, singing about, and witnessing God's power to save and heal for over 50 years, it is normal for us to ask, trust him, and then glorify his name regardless of the outcome. So in the press release that came out, you know, after the media had been following this event and, and all eyes had been on the church, they recast what they were doing as if they had, had just been asking God to raise all of um, from the dead. But really, they had been making prayer declarations, declaring that she would be raised from the dead. So... So the way they spoke of what they were doing changed after the fact. Oh, yeah. They had a back. I remember we talking about this yeah. and they had a backpedal a little bit with that. Yeah. And if, if you yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, is that so-called prayer isn't like a demand really? I mean, at least that's that's the way I sort of felt like it was like it's it's I demand because it's my right to be healed. It's my right to raise the dead. That is not, you know, it, it's like I can demand the angels to come and perform, you know, the miracle. Well, and they would say that God has authorized believers to make these prayer declarations. So they're using the authority that God has allegedly given them. And there are teachings. Chris Bellatin, he's the uh, kind of the chief prophet, you would say, the, the most, the highest prophet at Bethel Church in Reading. He has said that angels carry out the prayer declarations made by believers and that that they only do that though for those who are submitted to the authority of apostles, and so really he is teaching that God answers the prayer declarations of of, of believers if they're submitted to the authority of uh, apostles, and and that angels carry out those 
declarations. Now, are they getting this from scripture or this personal revelation that this is coming and saying this? Because, because I don't think I read that in scripture, but you, you guys tell me like, where's, where's this, where's this coming from? Well, with that particular teaching, um, Chris Felton references the passage about angels and head coverings and, and Corinthians. And mm. basically what they'll say is that they get, they'll claim to get prophetic illumination of passages of scripture. So really they can see understandings of scripture that no one has ever seen before. And so the teaching about angels and head coverings and Corinthians, you know, kind of, uh, and women wearing head coverings and this kind of thing, becomes a teaching about, well, people who are submitted to authority, and in, in this case, he would say apostolic authority, um, you know, the angels recognize that and, and carry out their declarations. But um, so, so they would say they get prophetic illumination into passages of scripture. So now that we're talking about apostles and, um, you know, Let's talk a little bit about apostles and prophets. And I know that you got two chapters on that, but you talk about the apostolic takeover and spiritual abuse. Uh, are there apostles today? And what do they mean? You know, when they call themselves apostles, what does that mean? Is that the same as the biblical apostles? I mean, what what, what do they mean by that? Uh, I wanted to go back to one point just before we do sure, that. Sure, uh, And, and uh, mention that, as I see it, there are three sources of error mm. in NAR. Uh, and this goes with what Holly was saying. So where did they get these ideas? Any uh, mistaken idea, I think, is sourced in one of these three ways. Either they misread the Scriptures mm -hmm. and uh, they, mis they mischaracterize what the Scriptures teach, or they offer a, an illuminated uh, interpretation. They believe they receive a kind of uh, revelation about revelation. So as they're reading the pages of Scripture, sometimes they believe that God is breathing on the Holy Spirit, or as sometimes they just say, Holy Spirit, is breathing on the words and on the pages of Scripture. And in that process, while they're reading and the Spirit is doing that, they receive an illuminated uh notion about what the passage teaches, and so that would be a second source of error. It's slightly different than the first source, because in the first source, they're treating the Bible pretty much straightforwardly, and they're not claiming to have special illumination about it, but they're just misrepresenting it. They're just misunderstanding it. The second is a special kind of error. And then the third, I would say, the third source of error for them is uh, additional revelations that they receive mm. apart from Scripture. So for anything that they teach, you might want to ask this question, does it come from Scripture, or does it come from revelations they receive? And if it comes from Scripture, how do they root it in Scripture? Do they see it as clearly taught that everybody should be able to see for themselves, or do they think they have special insight into the meaning of a passage because of what the Spirit is doing while they happen to be reading it as apostles or prophets. Okay. So then that brings us to, to your question uh, about uh, apostles again. Did, Holly, would you like to take a take a stab at that? Sorry, could you please repeat the question yeah. one more time? Yeah, I, I and of course I want people to read the book, so I, I don't want the yeah, whole... Yeah, don't be giving everything away. Yeah, don't give everything away. <laughs> if you could give us a little bit of an overview, both of the apostles and the prophets and... Uh, and after that, I, I'd like you guys to talk a little bit. Uh, that That's something that we see a lot not only in the Hispanic community here, but around the nation, uh, 
we we just had a conference about scripture, about the centrality of scripture and authority and all that. Mm-hmm. So I think when we talk about the apostles, I definitely want to talk about the prophetic and what they mean by the prophetic and some examples of their type of prophecies. But definitely talk about the apostles and why that authority. Right. So the core teaching of the NAR is that apostles and prophets are supposed to govern the church, that they hold formal offices in church government, that they hold the highest offices, really, and that all others, including pastors and elders, are supposed to submit to their authority. Um, And the reason is because the, the apostles and prophets claim to be, they have the new revelation that the church needs so that all Christians can learn to develop supernatural powers like prophesying, healing the sick, raising the dead. And so that they, the church can bring God's kingdom to earth, which is really uh, what they say is the great commission to bring God's kingdom to earth or to bring, bring heaven to earth. But it's important to realize a couple of things. First of all, the core teaching in NAR that apostles and prophets must govern the church. This is different than Pentecostal or charismatic teaching. Pentecostals and charismatics will teach that the miraculous gifts are for today, such as prophesying, speaking in tongues, you know, healing, healing, things like this. But they don't, they historically have not taught that the offices, the governing offices are for today. So they would not believe that everybody's supposed to submit to these offices of apostle and prophet. That's a a big radical departure from historic Pentecostal charismatic teaching. Um, and NAR, you know, they, they teach that everyone is supposed to submit to these apostles and prophets, but they don't use the term submit all the time. They often use euphemisms such as align. Uh, so everybody's supposed to align with the apostles or prophets. Um, and another thing that's really important to clarify is that many people who are part of the New Apostolic Reformation uh, do not say they're part of the New Apostolic Reformation. They might not know of the movement by that name. Or or the many leaders in the New Apostolic Reformation will just deny that they're part of it, even though they clearly are, because they hold to the core NAR teaching, which is that there are these authoritative governing apostles and prophets today. And so really that's the issue, not whether they deny they're part of NAR, or even if they know they're part of NAR, it's it's do they hold to that core teaching. So what about the prophets? Uh, some examples about the prophetic, you were talking about uh, different types of prophet, their prophecy, you were mentioning the fortune cookie one, and give, give a few of those examples of, uh, you know, as I was reading it, I was remembering, and I, I was burying my head under the pillow, like, oh, dear Lord, thank you, forgave me. <laughs> yeah, so... So because they believe that prophets also hold an office in church government, these prophets prophesy authoritatively. So it's not just like someone that might claim to have a a gift of prophecy and they give non-authoritative words maybe to individuals or within a local church. Um, Within NAR, these these prophets are claiming to give authoritative words, uh, sometimes critical revelation that is for the entire global church. Um, But the types of prophecy that we talk about in that chapter we talk about fails. Um, fails are, are pro- predictions that are just proved to be flat out wrong. They like the Trump, the prophecies that President Trump would be reelected in 2020 to a second consecutive term in office. Oh, yeah. You know, that was just wrong. So yeah. that's an example of a fail. Um, we also talk about fortune cookie, what we call fortune cookie prophecies. These are prophecies that are so vague and generic that um it's like a fortune cookie like anybody can read a fortune cookie and go oh yeah that exactly describes 
what's going on in my life right now because so these are prophecies that are very vague um and and so there'd really be no way to know whether they they happened or not even though they're they're supposed to be predictive prophecies and then the the third kind of predictive prophecies we talk about in that chapter are fraudulent prophecies and and these these are prophecies where where leaders may be claiming to make a predictive prophecy but really they're just um kind of parroting things that are in the news headlines and passing it off as prophecy or in some cases there appears to be what what looks like um that they're actually engaging in hot reading that they're actually getting information about the people they prophesy to ahead of time and then and then saying get sharing that information as if it was a prophecy they received from god revelation from god but they had done research prior to that event and then passed it off as a predictive prophecy and i i think the most confusing thing for people who are in the movement is that they actually believe you're prophesying. I, I think that uh, the, I'm sure there are people who are frauds who are, you know, making stuff up. But I think there's people who actually believe that. I mean, I saw it. I did training and they kind of like all the activations and all this stuff. And it seems like people actually believe it. Yeah. So, uh, Doug, do you have anything else to say as, as, as far as that is concerned uh, before we go into the next question. Well, I was going to say that uh, the flip side is that we can keep in mind uh, what what to be aware of if you want mm. to determine whether somebody might be a legitimate prophet or not. And uh, one thing to keep in mind is that a prophecy, if it's predictive. Now, by the way, in the Hebrew tradition of prophecy that we see in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, for example, or even in the New Testament, uh, the prophetic role included preaching, uh, declaring judgment, uh, but it was also predictive in many ways. And some of it was predictive about the coming Messiah, for example, and future events. The book of Daniel uh, there declares... Uh, uh, about the future that has not yet been fulfilled. So uh, it isn't all predictive prophecy when it is prophetic in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, the gift of prophecy might actually function in, in a variety of ways without being predictive, too, for that matter. Uh, but when it is predictive, it ought to be actionable. That's a crucial concept for me. Because that means that if if it's true, then you ought to be able to act as if it's true. You should be able to order your life accordingly. It doesn't matter that it's about the future, which is, has not yet unfolded. If it's been revealed by God, it's just as it should be every bit as reliable as any other practical teaching of Scripture, for that matter, so that you could actually go out and live a certain way based on what you've heard. So it ought to be actionable. It ought to be the sort of thing you could act on and do so responsibly. It would make a difference to what you do if you believe it. Uh, another thing that's important is that it, if it's predictive, it ought to be specific so that you can tell whether or not it has been fulfilled. Now, it might take some time for it to be fulfilled. Some prophecies could be fulfilled within hours, or they could be fulfilled within centuries. But there ought to be criteria by, uh, that are built into the prophecy so that it's, it's clear enough, 
that you could recognize whether it was fulfilled or not fairly definitively when the time came. And if it came and went and there was no fulfillment, then you would know it was a failed prophecy. So those are some important things. But always everybody should wonder about a person who claims to be a prophet what is it that grounds his claim? Why should I believe that this person who either claims to be a prophet or who functions like a prophet, even if she doesn't claim to be a prophet, she might function as a prophet? Why should I believe that this person is that kind, has that kind of authority? And unfortunately, too many people in church today, I think, we just we just believe that people have goodwill and they're Christian people and they're kind and they are compassionate and they wouldn't deliberately deceive. And so we give them the benefit of the doubt. And we think that if they purport to be prophets, um, why shouldn't we just believe them? And the answer is because we need evidence. We need evidence that they are because Jesus warned that there would be false prophets in the world, and that this, as we get closer to the time of His coming, there will be an increase in in this tendency. And we're actually seeing it, I think, in the world today. And so you can check out Matthew 24, verse 24 for that, or go to chapter 7 and see Jesus talking about this. So, And this is nothing uh, new. We, we, we've, been, we've been seeing... We've been seeing warnings since the Old Testament, right? We look at Deuteronomy 18.22, and it says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if that word does not come true, does not come to pass true, that the word of the Lord is not spoken, the prophet has spoken, is not to be listened to and right. not need to be afraid of him. And I think you, Doug, you really just hit the nail on the head that mm -hmm. we just live in a time where, you know, people in churches that just speak it. Right. And they're like, oh, this person's not going to do anything wrong to me. Like he he loves the Lord. We'll listen to him. And I think here in this community where we're at, we're in a border town. We see a lot of that. And um, which I do want to transition if uh, we, you guys have anything else to say, because I think we see it a lot. And 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 um, and and you have talked about it, uh, Raphael, is that the spiritual abuse uh, you guys talk about talk about this in chapter five of your book, the spiritual abuse, the apostolic tape takeover and spiritual abuse. Can you guys maybe touch on that? Because I think that here I can, I'm just thinking off my head how many people have come in here at this ministry and and have been spiritually abused that till this day are has wreck uh, havoc on them, on them and their family. And there's this big. Uh, trust issue was just church and just in general with people who say that they are followers of God. Um, there's always like, I, you know, you know, I don't know about that guy. Yeah. People are told, people are told that they need to come under the spiritual covering of an apostle in order to receive uh, divine protection, divine blessings. And if they leave the covering, then they're outside of God's will. And that's a dangerous place to be. Mm -hmm. You know, they're outside of the blessing and protection. And again, I mentioned euphemisms. A lot of euphemisms are used. So, so they'll say, you know, you need to align with the apostle and that makes you their spiritual son or daughter um, and things like that. But, um, but we share stories in the book of people who felt like they couldn't make any major life decisions, like whether to move or, or switch jobs or discipline their children without first consulting a prophet or, or the church apostle. Wow. Um, people that were 
overworked uh, by the apostles, you know, who took advantage of, of their followers uh, um, and who their followers who thought they were really apostles. Um, and then we talk about um, tactics that are used by leaders in this movement that have been spiritually abusive, such as name calling. So if anybody challenges or questions the authority of an apostle or prophet, they might it might be said they have a Jezebel spirit or they're a Pharisee. Uh, maybe Raphael's heard these things. Oh, <laughs> he has to tell the story. Wait, he, have you ever used these things yourself, of, Raphael? <laughs> no, I did not use it no. against other people, but, but the when, spirit of Absalom, you know, mm. the spirit of, you know, what Absalom did to David. And definitely mm. the Jezebel spirit is, I mean, we've been hearing that for but, but, 20 years. But just to clarify, that was said about you when you have left. Uh, well, I don't, I, I don't. I don't know if you said it. But. I don't know if if they, ex, you know, the words they used. But I yeah. know that whenever someone left, those are the type of words they use. Definitely, Jezebel spirit. You know, a spirit of division, spirit of witchcraft, spirit. There is a spirit of everything. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. That's that. Yeah. You can't hang Well, now notice, it isn't just that they use names. Mm. It's not just name-calling that's abusive. That is true. Mm. It's bullying. That's yes. bullying. But, but here's the thing. They are doing it from a position of presumed authority. Mm. They imagine that they have knowledge about a person's spirit and condition of the soul, and they declare this person to be have a Jezebel spirit or the spirit of... You know, disunity. They they accuse people of of uh, who are critical or raise questions even about the movement. Uh, they say, well, they're just causing disunity in the church, and we know what the Spirit of God thinks about that, mm -hmm. don't we? And so they they are. It's not just name calling. It is name calling from a position of condescension, assuming authority to declare something about somebody else and label them in this way. Now, somebody might turn around and say, well, now, wait a minute. Don't you do that when you criticize NAR? Well, actually, no, we don't do that. Uh, we do use the label New Apostolic Reformation as a descriptive label of a movement that is taking place in the church today. Mm. Uh, some people don't want to be called that. They yeah. are NAR, but they deny that they are. They don't want anybody to believe that about them. And so they think that when we do that, maybe it's divisive, or when we call them out on some error, or we say, you know, the Scriptures don't teach that, or if they do, you need to come up with better evidence. Uh, they want to say, you know, we're being divisive. But the truth is, what we're trying to do is we're trying to use the Scriptures, the Word of Truth, yeah. rather than a Word of Faith, notice, <laughs> or using the Word of Truth, as Jesus called it in John 17, to help uh, prepare the church for discernment in in these matters. Yes. And uh, if we're mistaken, then someone who disagrees with us, of course, should try to correct us and show us where we've gone wrong in our understanding of Scripture. And we expect that. That's what we think uh, teachers uh, should submit to, uh, whether it's other teachers or ourselves. And so we're not doing something that we don't think others should be doing. Uh, but when you use labels and names that are derogatory and that are judgmental about the character of an individual, and you're doing it from a presumed authority as an apostle or a prophet, that's an abusive thing to do. Mm -hmm. We I, also think that it's abusive uh, to presume on people's goodwill 
and expect them to simply believe that they are prophets or apostles without putting up evidence for that. And that's more subtle, but they're basically expecting us to take their word for it. And I can't take their word for it. I mean, I'm very um, concerned about this. I, mm-hmm. You asked me, well, why, why did I get involved in writing about this? I'll just give you one other reason. First of all, I think that because the Scriptures are a source of knowledge for us, and Jesus said that it's by means of the Scriptures that we are sanctified in the truth. Uh, Thy word is truth, he said in John 17. And so that's how we are purified, is through a knowledge of the truth of the word. But another thing that concerns me here is that the, the, uh, th- there are people who purport to, to do miracles. Uh, people believe about Bethel Church, for example, that miracles are happening every day up there and that God is doing a great work. And uh, they believe that uh, they're receiving revelations from God for individuals, for the church, and, and really for the world. And uh, I don't believe these things. And here's, here's why. Um, I look for uh, uh, accuracy in their teaching of Scripture as a condition for believing their other claims, so that if they can't read the Scriptures accurately and render them the way they're meant to be understood, then I don't think I should believe them when they say that they receive special revelations or when they're claiming that certain miracles are happening but not presenting much in the way of evidence. And so we give the, you know, where there's a tendency, and it's out of the goodness of of our hearts, I think, that we do this, uh, is to give people the benefit of the doubt. But we shouldn't do that, especially if they have a track record of uh, misrepresenting uh, what the Bible teaches about the kingdom. I know that we're running out of time, yes, but but there's definitely okay. something I want you to say, even if it's two minutes. Definitely we want to talk about, you know, how can someone break free from this? But before that, Holly, could you tell us, does it really matter what we sing at church? I think that's really important because music has a huge role in this movement. Am I wrong? No, beliefs are woven into our hearts through music. Music um, is emotionally powerful. And, you know, often we can leave church uh, thinking about, you know, the, the words of the songs we'll be thinking about all week, and we may even forget the sermon, you know, but but music is very powerful. And um, even Bill Johnson, you know, at Bethel, he he's talked about this, this power of music. And he says, music bypasses all of the intellectual barriers. And when the anointing of God is on a song, people will begin to believe things they wouldn't believe through teaching. Mm. And so he actually thinks this is a feature of music that should be exploited, you know, and, and, um, and he's also said that, uh, he sees Bethel music as a tool to export the church's teachings and practices to churches throughout the world. And so, um, we are concerned about the NAR music, like Bethel music, music from Jesus culture, music from the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri, that's being used in churches, uh, churches everywhere, because um, the music is drawing people to NAR. And many people don't know this, but the theology is actually laced through the lyrics of the music. Um, and even the, the songs that seem innocuous, that they, the lyrics seem to be sound, um, the music is still drawing people. We've heard many people have told us that they were first drawn to Bethel Church, for example, because of Bethel music, and that brought them into NAR. So the music is is something people uh, should be concerned about. 
So you know, we have a chapter, uh, one whole chapter in the book Counterfeit Kingdom, just talking about the music and giving examples from the lyrics of ways that they uh, insert their teaching uh, in this uh, subtle way that bypasses the intellect and goes to the heart. So if we were to talk about the NAR, we could be here another three to four hours. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd, I'd yeah. like, you know, the question is, for those who are listening, uh, I, I mean, for you guys, uh, there are many people who are listening. Uh, you are talking about spiritual abuse. I think one of the biggest tools they use is fear. Uh, one of the reasons I did not leave my church was fear, fear of the God chastising me, fear of man instead of fear of God. How can someone break free from this movement? And and I want to clarify, many times we say, we, you know, it's, we say that the apostles and the prophets are the ones who are in authority, but pastors also, there are pastors in this movement who have that same mentality of control and manipulation. So how can someone break free? And while we're talking, after you talk about that, if you could give us then a presentation of what is the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it goes tied on to that. Well, I'll start by saying there's definitely hope that people do break free from this movement. We hear from people all the time who've come out of this movement and are so thankful. My own husband came out of this movement before we were married. So there is hope. Um, people need to learn to read the Bible better because they've been taught. Uh, they, they've, they've seen how apostles and prophets teach the Bible and, and how they misteach the Bible and misuse it. And so they've, they, they need to relearn a proper uh, method for reading the Bible and reading it in context and according to proper rules of interpretation. And um, uh, so it's important for people to find a good church, a sound church, um, when they come out of this movement and, um, they need to learn about spiritual abuse so they can learn to recognize the signs of spiritual abuse and see the ways that maybe it had been being used on them and, and they didn't realize it. Um, we also encourage people who are coming out of this movement to find a support group. For example, there's a Facebook group called NAR Recovery. Uh, yes. I think it's NAR Recovery Non-Denominational Group. Okay. You know it. Yeah, NAR Recovery. Yes, many people who come out of NAR have, have found support in, in a group like that one where they can talk with other people because many Christians don't understand their experiences. People who've never been part of NAR can't relate to them, and so they need to talk to other people who can relate to their own experiences. Yeah, wow. I would say on top of that, a, a reason why a support group can be so valuable is that people have learned. Remember what I said at the beginning about how we learn our practical theology of prayer and other things by observing and imitating others around us. And that's what people have done for decades in some cases. They've been in churches, in our churches, and this is how they understand prayer, and this is how they understand the kingdom of God and life in the kingdom and so forth, and what it means to have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And when they walk out of that, they're not sure what they're walking into sometimes, mm. but they realize it's different, mm. and it feels different, and it's foreign to them, and it's it's kind of uncomfortable, and it isn't just different. It feels inferior initially. It can feel like I'm, I'm, I'm leaving something that is more alive and more exciting and more uh, reflective of the manifestation of the Spirit in the world today. Now, usually by this time, they've understood that that's an illusion, that that's mm. not reality. But it's still what they were feeling at the time. And so to leave that and go somewhere else, 
they need different criteria for evaluating a work of God. It isn't just in terms anymore of how I feel uh, when I'm gathered with with the other with the saints. Now those feelings are can be very real, and you can have them elsewhere as well. I'm not saying that that goes away, but what I am saying is you need to expect that your experience will will be different. But what you want is authenticity. Yeah. That's what you want is authenticity by biblical criteria, by by standards that God himself has set. And that's when you see transformation of life, growth in the fruit of the Spirit, knowledge of the Word, growing in a, in a knowledge of the Word, fellowship where you're interceding for one another with petitionary prayer and faith and seeing God work. So these are different criteria that you need to use for evaluating a a church experience in contrast to what you were used to when you've come out of the movement. We've invited people in the final chapter, and I don't want to, you know, we there is so much more that's in this book than we've had time to talk the, about. There, there Believe is, me. Yes. But uh, we have a, an invitation for people to join the resistance because we, and we call it that because the New Apostolic Ref- Reformation is a movement. And to respond to a movement effectively, you need a counter-movement. You need to respond to the specific errors of the movement and um, and counter with uh, truth mm. and a knowledge of the Word of God. And so we've, uh, we've invited readers uh, to participate in that effort with us and offered a number of specific suggestions in the final chapter for how you might do that. Wow. Well, guys, that interview went so fast. And, um, you know, before uh, before we end this podcast, uh, Romans uh, 10, 14, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Can you guys please, someone, share the good news, the gospel, to our worldwide audience today? Yes, well, it's really very simple. Uh, There's some good news and there's some bad news. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the the good news, uh, there's good, good news, and then there's really, really great news. But the the good, good news is that uh, we were created in the image of God and we were meant for fellowship with God. And uh, that fellowship was broken in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. And that sin has passed, uh, been passed down through every generation to all of us, and we have all sinned, and we fall short of glorifying God, and we're incapable of experiencing fellowship with Him because of it. But the good, the really great news, is that God provided a way to restore that fellowship, to be reconciled with God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, who was His incarnate Son, who lived a sinless life, a holy life, and revealed the Father and His will for us, and then died a horrible death on the cross for our sake so that we would not uh, need to pay that same penalty for our sin, and we could be uh, brought into His family as children of God through faith. You know, Paul said to uh, the Corinthian church that he made, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God through him or in him. And uh, so he became our substitute. And if we believe that, then he is that for us. 
and uh, we can enjoy assurance of salvation knowing that these things are true. This is different than anything that adds to that that says, but the gospel must include other things like a manifestation of uh, the works of the Spirit through miracles and new revelations and things like this, which people in NAR associate with the gospel of the kingdom. Now, that's biblical language, but that is not actually uh, what we believe. That's not exactly what uh, Jesus is referring to there. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for our listeners. Uh, Please go get the book, Counterfeit Kingdom, The Dangers of New Revelation, New Prophets, and New Age Practices in the Church by B&H Publishing. Uh, I like to say this, guys, so all our guests, where can they find you guys? Uh, If you guys want to be found, uh, again, you guys, for our listeners, you got to get the book. We, we get bar- that book. Get the book. We barely touched the hey, surface. Hey, I bought nine copies and yes. sharing it with pastors. Yeah. Buy, <laughs> buy them in bulk and share them with pastors, with friends who are in yes. the movement. You really have to share it. It's it's amazing. So where can people find you guys if they had questions? Again, if you guys want to be found, I think, um, you know, yes. <laughs> so I blog at hollypivic.com. And I'm also very active on Facebook and as well and Instagram and um, I'm on Twitter as well. There you go, Doug. Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter and Facebook. I can be found there. Uh, I have a blog, but I'm not actively uh, posting just now. Uh, Holly, not only does she post uh, more frequently than I do, but she she posts regularly on this topic. Mm. And and so she keeps uh, people kind of up to date on things that are going on. And we talk quite a bit about this, as, you know, sometimes daily. We have conversations about wow. things that are going on in the movement, and then these things will show up eventually uh, in in either an article that she's posted on her blog or something else that we've written that, that she, she will identify for people so they'll know how they can get their hands on it. Uh, to get the book, it's very simple. Uh, you can go to Amazon and get it, Counterfeit Kingdom. Uh, you can get it at the B&H uh, publishing website. There's a book page that's dedicated to that. I think it's called counterfeitkingdombook.org. Is it, Holly? I think counterfeitkingdombook.com.com. So it's it's easy to find. And by the way, I am really happy. I haven't said this uh, publicly before this, but I am really happy with the audiobook uh, for this. I've oh. listened to much of it, not all of it yet, but uh, the narrator for that does a really fine job, uh, I think, of uh, making that easy to listen to, too. So if that's your preference, uh, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend that to you. Well, there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to listen to the audio book, uh, you're taking a long trip or just on a way to work, uh, you know, please uh, please go uh, check that out. Stop by Bridge and get it. And stop by Bridge. We have the book. (laughs) We we have a section uh, here at Bridge where all the books that we do the podcast. And uh, I know that this is going to be a popular book here at Bridge. Uh, Guys, thank you for coming on Bridge Radio today and talking about this. You don't know how blessed I was in this interview. And I'm sure our worldwide audience will be, too. Thank you so much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's episode on um, Holly and Douglas' uh, new book, 
counterfeit kingdom, the dangers of new revelation, new prophets, and new age practices in the church by BNH Publishing. Raphael, what'd you think? <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. It really was. I mean, um, I'm all, you know, I'm over halfway through the book, and it's just you guys got to read this. Yes, there's. You know, I, I was reading it and I felt like I was reading my story and the story of so many others. It's very genuine. It's very clear. It's not about bashing people. It's about yes. saying the truth yeah. and helping set others free uh, through the power of the gospel. So I, I definitely, definitely, definitely recommend it. And like I said, I bought a book, you know, a box of nine to share with people. This is one of those books you really want to share. I mean, you got to share the word of God with people. But if you find good books... This is one to share, and we'll definitely have it on, you know, here at Bridge uh, to share it with others. So, I mean, they just start up with chapter chapter one, boom, in your face, wake up, Olive, which we heard the. I remember to, that video. Uh, I and, remember that video. I still remember what they were singing during the episode, and and to me, one of the most you know most important chapters is the one about about music, the toxic worship music. Yeah, that's chapter eight in the book. Yeah, I, I feel like since I left the NAR, a lot of people don't understand what's my my issue with some of the music. And they really point out things that people would go, oh, that is why. It's really an issue. It's, it's really a gateway into the movement. Yeah. And, and, and again, guys, uh, uh, I wish we can be on a podcast getting into more details but again we're here to do a podcast on the book so that you guys can go and get the book and read it i promise you this is one of these books that you guys won't be able to put down like it's it's so good um and 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 please go out there support these guys proclaim the truth and i mean the whole pipe piper thing illustration that she gave awesome and what you i mean i was just like wow and just talking about the music and 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 you're just like what a great analogy and the book i love yeah i do love the book cover for sure i'm looking forward to reading the previous books as well so ladies and gentlemen please don't forget to follow us on facebook instagram twitter and youtube and like we always like to end the show what is your only comfort in life and in death that i am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior jesus christ till next week